Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, coming up today, we have a returning guest, Elise Hooper. She's joining me in the studio around 12.30 today. She's the author of The Other Alcott, and today we're going to talk about her new book, Learning to See, a novel of Dorothea Lang, the woman who revealed the real America. She's known for um, creating the most iconic photographs of the 20th century America. Uh, she looked at uh, some really uh, interesting subjects, and uh, such as the Japanese internment, the Great Depression, uh, the Roaring Twenties. We'll talk about that, too. So uh, lots to talk about with Elise Hooper, learning to see coming up around 1230. Uh, we'll also talk today with Chris Friswick. She's been a journalist for 20 years, and she says, you think, you think that would prepare you for writing a book. But uh, apparently it didn't. But she's joining us today to talk about her new novel. It's called The Ghost Manuscript, and it goes from uh, Search in Wales to uh, Cape Cod. She covers uh, the Dark Ages, and uh, also a ghost joins her, a, a monk uh, from 1,500 years ago. But first, I'm very pleased to uh, bring you uh, an interview, a short conversation that I had with Steve Berry last week. He was going to join us on the live show today, but something came up, so we chatted on Friday, and his new book is called The Malta Exchange. And um, for those of you who are familiar with his work, uh, he's been on the show a couple of times before, and um, maybe four or five times, actually. He writes quite a lot, of, uh, very prolifically. And uh, he's the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author of 14 Cotton Malone Adventures and four standalone thrillers. His books have been translated into 40 languages with more than 23 million copies in 51 countries. And uh, we talked about the Malta Exchange. And if you remember Steve from before, he's another person who loves history and he loves to go dig out these unique facts that people know very little about. And then he'll build them into his story with Cotton Malone. And here's our conversation, Steve Berry with the Malta Exchange. So let's begin with the obvious, Steve, with a synopsis of the story. The Pope's dead, a conclave's about to convene at the Vatican to appoint his successor, and your protagonist, Cotton Malone, is at Lake Como. Um, quite a lot of stuff going on there, so fill in the blanks for us. Well, uh, a cardinal has fled Rome before the conclave starts and is headed to Malta in search of a 4th century document from Constantine the Great. And Cotton gets caught up in all of this. And he's in Como for something else, but he gets drawn in. And this book deals with something very interesting, dealing with the aspect of religion, an aspect of it that I've been wanting to deal with in a novel for quite some time, but I, I just held off on it, Wait, frankly, wanting to see if somebody else was going to do it. But no one did, so I... <laughs> it together in this book and and made it happen it's a um it's something interesting it's something surprising and i think the reader will be a little uh, like wow i didn't know that they do say if there's a book you want to write and it's not been written you have to write it yourself so there you go <laughs> that's exactly 
exactly right. You, you, sometimes you, you can hold an idea for only so long. Right. So um, you dedicate the Malta Exchange to your wife, Elizabeth, and writing the acknowledgments. Uh, this book is for Elizabeth, an extraordinary woman who's not only made my stories better, but made my life better, too. How does she help make your stories better, Steve? Well, she's the first reader of the story, so she's the first editor who gets their hands on it. Elizabeth is a, an accomplished editor on her own. She has a company called 1001darknights.com. It's a it's a, a marketing company that sells novellas for in the romance business, and so she edits around 40 manuscripts, 30 to 40 manuscripts a year. She's very good at it, so she gets the first crack at it, and so she's and she's tough. She does not pull any punches she's really hard and she uh she makes me uh, get back in there and rewrite it and put it together uh, the manuscripts wouldn't be what they were if it wasn't for her right so as always you did a lot of uh, hands-on overseas research for your story and one of the things i always enjoy with your books is your writer's note at the back of the book and you begin this one saying that the travel for the malta exchange involves some of the best trips you and Elizabeth have ever taken. You went to places in uh, Italy, you went to Malta, and you say you really wanted to showcase Malta in this book. So tell us why that was important. It's one of the coolest places on earth. It's 12 miles long, six miles wide, a limestone rock sticking out of the Mediterranean, but it's just loaded with history. It's like a living history museum. When you walk Valletta, you're walking in the 16th century, literally. It's one of the last remaining walled cities in the world. The watchtowers are still there all around, that the knights erected, the buildings the knights put up, many are still there. The whole place just reeks of the past. And so I wanted to showcase it. Particularly the co-cathedral, the church, is the most beautiful church in the world. It really is. There's, there's none to compare to it. It's quite spectacular. The floor, particularly, 400 marble tombs, and those tombs fit into this treasure hunt that I've put together. So the reader's going to get a pretty good travel log of Malta, and hopefully it'll entice them to go and take a visit. We, we very much enjoyed our two trips there. Yeah, it is a beautiful island. I will agree with you on that. Um, now, you went to several places in Italy, too. Where specifically did you go? I think you went to Lake Como. Oh, oh to Como. For, and we followed Mussolini's path that he used to try to escape Italy and get to Switzerland. But he was caught there and shot up by Lake Como. We went to his execution site. We followed all of that. Oddly, when you go to the execution site, there are fresh flowers there. there. Oh, really? There are fresh flowers there every week. It's very strange. And they were there the day we were there. And so, you know, this, this brutal dictator who murdered tens of thousands of people, people still bring flowers to where he died. It's very, very strange. Uh, Como's a beautiful place, though, and we it's showcased in the novel. And, of course, Rome is in the novel. The Vatican is in the novel. Uh, and those places we had visited many times in the past. Mm. And the Knights of Malta were very unpopular on the island. They they ruled the... I didn't know very much about this until I read uh, your notes here. Um, tell us a little bit about the Knights of Malta from historical days. They are the last remaining warrior monks. The Templars are gone, the Teutonics are gone, but the Knights of Malta are still here. And they're now a worldwide humanitarian organization. They deal with medical relief. They're headquartered in Rome, but for till 1798, they were headquartered on the island of Malta until Napoleon threw them off. Uh, the Maltese hated them. 
Yes, they were they were an arrogant bunch who ruled the Maltese, treated them like slaves, basically. So the, Mal the Maltese were not sad to see them go uh, when they were tossed off, except that the French who came in their place were worse. But they threw them out within five years, and then the British eventually took the island. I don't think uh, they were they were very popular either. <laughs> The Knights are still headquartered in Rome in two villas, which are the smallest countries in the world. Those two villas are. They're recognized by 150 nations as an autonomous body, and they're there, and they're still there. What I did is I just resurrected something within their ranks that used to be there that's not there anymore, and I just put it back and uh, had some fun with them a little bit. Hmm. So you do all this historical research, and it's, of course it's different for every book. For this book, um, what I know you, you you talk about what you did include that's actually historical and what you made up, but um, was the one piece of information that from history that you shared in this story that you built into this story that you felt had to be in there and why? Well, it's what's in the actual document itself that they're after, the fourth century document. Now, the document is fake. I made that up, but what's in the document is real. And... Uh, that information, yeah, that the story is built around that. It's it's very surprising. I think most readers today don't realize what happened in Turkey in a little town called Nicaea in 325 A.D. when literally the world changed. And what happened that in that little town in Turkey during that summer is still affecting us today, and it still has impact on us today. And I think that'll surprise the reader. Hmm. Where did you, or how did the idea spark for Cotton Malone to search for Churchill's letters? Because that's where he begins. Well, doing the research, I came across this thing about the letters, supposed letters between Churchill and Mussolini, where Churchill was offering the island of Malta in return for Italy to stay out of the war. There's a, a great uh, legend about these letters. They've never been found. There's just They're just part of a, a myth regarding Churchill. Churchill himself spent several months in Lake Como after the war. Some say he went in search of them because it was rumored that Mussolini brought them north with him when he tried to escape. And the two satchels that he had that were full of documents disappeared when they shot him, and they've never been found since. So when I came across that in the research, I realized, well, there's a good way to tie this in. There's a good way to bring in Malone and get it going. So the reader's going to learn about that. Uh, that Mussolini-Churchill connection, and then that's what gets Cotton into the fray, and then he sort of stays in for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So from having talked with you several times now, it seems that your former career as a successful attorney set you up well to be a disciplined writer. But I'm wondering if you ever have times where you run into... Um, you know, just a mental block. I know they call it writer's block, but sometimes we just have a mental block about something writing. And if so, what does that look like for you? How do you get through it? Well, it happens every day, probably. <laughs> every, day, every day, five, six times a day, probably. I get mental blocks where I just, I don't know where to go next. I don't know what to do next. It happens all the time. Sometimes they last a day or more. You just stop and go do something else and get your head cleared out, and eventually it works itself out. It's, it's like a big knot that gets in tight. If you just leave it alone, it'll loosen up, and eventually you, know, you can untie it. And that's for me. I just stop and go do something else. You know, the writers, that's not, for me, that's not writer's block. Writer's block for me is, is when the little voice in your head tells you not to write anymore, and that's when you stop.
you don't write anymore, and that's a much more serious malady, and I know writers who've had that, and to me, that's really what I consider more writer's block. Getting stuck every day is a uh, is a natural process. It's, it's something you're going to have, every writer has to learn to deal with and get through. Right, right. So this book, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the 14th Cotton Malone adventure. Yeah. And you've done four standalone thrillers as well. Um, so a lot of experience under your belt. Um, do you have a favorite time of scene to write? Do you prefer to write action or dialogue? Well, certainly, if you want to go faster, dialogue is a faster scene to write. I think there's no question about that. When the characters are interacting with one another, you don't have to look at research. You don't have to get information in there. Mixing information with action is the hardest to write. It takes the longest to write. And because you've got to try to mix it in as seamlessly as you can and not overdo either the action or the information, you want a good mix of both. And they're the the more difficult scenes. So, you know, when I have you know, talking scenes where I've got people who are, you know, they're interacting and this is a a situation where characters have to talk to one another. I don't have a lot of dialogue in my stories. I have dialogue, but I have it when they really have to talk. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they have to talk and those are a little faster to write. Uh, But, you know, I try not to do a lot of dialogue unless it's necessary. Mm. So I was looking at your website, Stephen, you have some exciting news to share, I think, about uh, a TV series coming up. Well, we got a got an option. Uh, uh, Waterman Entertainment uh, took an option on the Cotton Malones, and they're very excited about it. And they're going to they're going at it hard to see if they can put together something. You know, an, an option doesn't mean necessarily you're going to get a show, but right. at least you got people interested and you got people working hard to try to make a show. And it'll be kind of fascinating if they'll be able to put it together. We we've also going to be doing an option here shortly on the Romanov prophecy, which is my second novel, dealt with Russia and the Czar and. The Romanoffs, uh, <clears throat> Brooks Darnell, a, an actor on The Young and the Restless, would like to be Miles Lord, and he's going to take an option on that book. Yeah, I can see uh, certainly the characters lend themselves very well to, uh, to uh, you know, television or, or film. Um, so lest people think this is an overnight success for you, I was <laughs> interested to read on your website that you actually wrote for 12 years and wrote eight manuscripts before you got okay. a bite. So yeah, the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word was 12 years. Eight manuscripts, five went to New York houses, rejected 85 times. I made it on the 86th time, 12 years after I started. So it was a it was a very long process for me to get published. Well, I'm glad you stuck with it, Steve. <laughs> I am too. I am too. Yeah. So um, final quick word you'd like to leave our listeners with today. Uh, the, the book is out there in stores now in all formats, hardcover, large print, audio, e-books, download, you name it. Uh, check it out. And you can check out that book and you can check out me at steveberry.org. Everything's there. All right. Thank you so much, Steve Barry. Appreciate it. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. 
That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Coming up March 25th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Seattle author Elise Hooper joins us with a peek into the life of photographer Dorothea Lange, the woman who captured the real America. We'll also hear from international best-selling author Steve Barry, who always reveals little-known facts about history and thrillers. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on more than 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Exploring new territory every day. This is Alternative Talk 1150. And now I'm going to talk with Chris Freiswick, and her new book is called The Ghost Manuscript. She's a journalist, editor, humorist, teacher, and author. His works appeared in national magazines, newspapers, and books for more than 20 years. Uh, she's also an avid cyclist, cook, and traveler who divides her time between Cape Cod and St. Croix. How nice. Chris Freiswick, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here, and thank you for the invite. You're very welcome. The book is called The Ghost Manuscript. And uh, I read somewhere, and I don't quite recall where it was, Chris, that you said you would think... 20 years as a journalist, I'd be well prepared to write a book of my own. <laughs> but you said no, not necessarily so. So what was that process like for you? Well, you know, it was funny because I, I got uh, the same thing that makes me want to write about something in a nonfiction format makes me interested in writing about things in a fictional format. And so usually that ends up being I'll hear a story or I'll see something and it makes me go, hmm, that's really interesting. And then that thing will just stick in my head and I won't be able to stop thinking about it. And then it either turns into a newspaper or magazine story or in the case of the ghost manuscript, it becomes a 12-year saga of trying to get a story pulled together into a book format. Uh, it's my debut novel. It's the first time I've ever tried anything like it. But I feel like I've written, you know, I was just listening to the, to, to Steve speak a moment ago about how he wrote for 12 years and, and wrote eight manuscripts. And I feel like I did the same thing, but it was the same manuscript eight times, basically. Right. Um, so that's basically how that went. Uh, it was really a lot of learning on the go. Uh, people think, oh, you're a writer, you can do whatever, you know. It is such a different format from, from what I've spent my career doing. Um, fiction is such a, an art form, uh, but it's, it has such a different muscle uh, right. than, than anything I've done in the nonfiction world, except for maybe humor. <laughs> right. Wait, so having gone through all that, was it worth it? Oh, absolutely, and I can't wait to get started. I literally cannot wait to get started on my next one. Um, uh, we, the the editing process on this one, right before publication, and now all the all the book tour ramp up is taking up every bit of my available free time that I'm not working at my regular day job. Um, and so as soon as the, the, the kind of book tour mania has died down a little bit, then I'm going to dive into my next, uh, my next project, which I'm really excited about. Um, but it's, um, it's, 
you know, it's it's a hundred percent worth it. But it felt like it was a twelve year long pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book. So it's been described as absolutely addictive. Indiana Jones with a female lead, uh, a treasure hunt accompanied by a ghostly monk. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in here. You start uh, the journey takes you to Wales. It ends on Cape Cod. So give us a synopsis of your storyline. So the book is about a woman named Karis Jones. She is a rare book authenticator for a large auction house that's based in Boston, Massachusetts. And her specialty is uh, rare manuscripts from a, a period of time that are frequently referred to as the Dark Ages. A lot of professors and cultural types don't like that term anymore, but I, I still use it because it's very descriptive of what was going on in the world between 450 and 700 AD. It was a very dark time where a lot of literate people were basically being exterminated by illiterate right. people, especially in the British Isles, uh, which is where the action sort of takes place. Um, she has a she has a client. Her biggest client is a very wealthy tech billionaire who she finds out at the beginning of the book has been confined to a psychiatric hospital for unknown reasons. And his son has decided to sell not just the mansion that he owns, one of the mansions that he owns, but this enormous library of Romano-British Dark Age manuscripts that Karis has helped him collect. So she's heartbroken at this idea of this beautiful library being being sold off. But she is called in to go in and authenticate it. Well, in the process of doing so, she is made aware of a rare manuscript that isn't on any of the catalogs that you would traditionally find these manuscripts. These manuscripts are amongst the most well-documented books in the world. because There are so few of them. But this one somehow managed to evade all uh, all record. Um, but But... John Harper, the billionaire, has had it for a decade and has been studying it. And he makes her an offer she can't refuse. He offers her this manuscript in exchange for her efforts in following the clues within, which he believes will lead to the resting place of the man who became known as King Arthur. Right. And not just King Arthur's in that tomb, but the vast treasures of the people that he, that this character, this historical individual, this general that fought during the Dark Ages in in Romano-British Isles to protect the people from the Anglo-Saxons, he, he it was very common for the people to give their wealth for protection to to the generals or to bury it in their backyard. Uh, and so there's a vast treasure in this tomb as well. Right. Um, John right. Harper wants her to claim the find, attribute it to him, and in exchange, she gets his entire library. And, and she gives up quite a lot of herself in order to do this because she really wants that library because she likes to be kind of quiet and by herself. And so um, there's there's a challenge there for her in that, too. Yeah, I mean, I really I wanted to really get into the head of the character of like my goal with this book was really to put a normal person into an extraordinary circumstance and see what they did. Um, and she's had a, a kind of a sad life, and she's basically chosen willingly to spend her time with books rather than people. People are really messy <laughs> and complicated. Right, I right. think there's a lot of people out there in Radio Land who could probably relate to that sentiment right about now. Um, books are quiet. They don't talk back. You know, when you've reached the end of them, you're done. Um, you know, you can fall in love with the characters, but you're never going to break your heart. Uh, and so she's basically decided that she'd much rather not 
really dwell. She has one best friend. Um, that's pretty much it. No long-term relationships. And then when she is given the opportunity to, to, to embark on this search, she quickly realizes she's going to need help, and she has to do something she's really uncomfortable with, with which is reaching out to other people um, and making herself vulnerable and, and letting some of those walls come down. And, and part of this book, you know, to me, the book is really about her evolution from a person who is completely cloistered off from human relationships to one that realizes that that's what makes the world a place worth being. Right. And it's getting rave reviews from reviewers. It doesn't come out till April 2nd. Is that correct? That is correct. So people yeah. can pre-order right now. Um, I'm wondering, did you actually go to Wales for part of your research or did you? how did you do that? So my husband is Welsh, ah, okay. and he is a Welsh person, grew up in Swansea. Uh, we, the genesis of the book, actually, I attribute it to his mom and dad, uh, who told me a story one afternoon while we were sitting around having tea in their living room. That just was one of those stories I mentioned earlier that just stuck right. in my head and wouldn't let me go and evolved into this book. And so much of the book is set in Wales because in the, over the course of you know, my relationship with my husband, we've been married for coming on 16 years. And this book, the genesis of this book happened in the very early days of our marriage. So this shows you how long this thing's been kicking around in my brain. Um, I just fell madly in love with, with Wales and the countryside and the people and, mm -hmm. and the lore and the the terrain and the even the weather, which is, it, I'm sure you know, completely very... miserable on a pretty <laughs> regular basis. But... Well, yeah, because I used to live in Wales. Uh, I lived there for a while. And it is, it's a beautiful place. Um, you know, Ireland gets a lot of attention. And I think Wales really gets overlooked because it has this, it has its own lore, as you said. And it's very, very, very beautiful. Um, we're almost at the end of our segment, Chris. Flies by, right? <laughs> um, so what would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, I just, again, uh, April 2nd is the launch date for the Ghost Manuscript. You can find it wherever fine books are sold, including all electronic uh, book vendors. Uh, also, if you'd like to know more about me and about the book, please visit chrisfrieswickauthor.com or theghostmanuscript.com. Both will get you to my website where I have all kinds of information about the book, about uh, my biography, and also about uh, the, the events that we have scheduled as part of the book tour as well as links to some of my other work if anyone's interested in my other life where I write about things that actually happen. Awesome. And I apologize. I was saying your name wrong. It's Friesewick, Chris Friesewick. No, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. It, the way it's spelled, it looks like fries. It does look so like cool. fries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. And good luck with the, with the launch. Thank you so much. And please do stay with us. When we come back, we'll be joined by Elise Hooper. Her new book is called Learning to See. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wild life. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit Paws.org or call 
425-787-2500. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And joining me in the studio right now, we have Elise Hooper. Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell you a little bit about Elise. Uh, she's joined us before with her other book, The Other Alcott. That was her first novel. She's a New Englander by birth and at heart, but she <laughs> does live here in Seattle, uh, where she teaches history and literature and obviously writes books. And this one is called Learning to See, a novel of Dorothea Lang, the woman behind, the woman who revealed the real America, and it's quite a fascinating read. So let's begin with, um, I, I read in the beginning of the book, uh, you wrote a note and you said that not many people's real lives translate perfectly into a dramatic art arc that's ready for a novel. But you obviously thought Dorothea Lang, a real living person, you thought her story arc would translate. It certainly does. I mean, Dorothea's life Boy, Dorothea's life adds just one interesting turn after another. So if anything, I had to smooth out the historical record a little to focus on kind of an emotional journey of her life because she just, she's a fascinating time capsule of women from that era. Oh my gosh, yes. And um, we'll talk about some of her photographs later on, but how did you come across her? You, you've already, you were exposed to her long before you wrote about her, right? Right, right. When I was teaching high school, I used her photographs when I was teaching the Grapes of Wrath, um, certainly the Great Depression. I had used her photographs for years. 
But I never knew anything about the woman behind the camera. And I'm even embarrassed to admit I had never really wondered about the woman who took those photos. <laughs> I mean, now I know they were, she, Dorothea took those for the government, so she never really was given a byline in anything. So you rarely see her name even, oh, really, okay. when connected with the work. Right. And so at what point did you decide you wanted to write about her? Well, when I finished The Other Alcott, I had been traveling back and forth to the Northeast over and over to visit Orchard House and other sites specific to the Alcotts to research that novel. And, you know, here I live in Seattle with two young girls of my own. And I said to my husband, I need to be more pragmatic here and pick a more local subject. (laughs) (laughs) And so initially I thought I was going to work on a book about Imogen Cunningham, who's a photographer who's born in Portland, but went to University of Washington and spent a great deal of time in Seattle. But as I cast my net wider while I was researching her, I discovered her best friend when she uh, moved to California was Dorothea Lang. And that's when all the kind of dots started con- being connected in my mind of, oh, wait, this is the same woman who took those hard-hitting pictures from the 30s and 40s. And wait, she arrives in San Francisco as a young woman in 1918 on a trip around the world. Who Single women were doing that back then? And so I just started becoming more and more intrigued by Dorothea's story and, and doing more and more research. And eventually I decided this is my main character. Mm, and I read you spent about five years researching. Is that right? Is about four. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Start to finish. And so um, why, again, I think I asked you this on the other Alcott, but, you know, this is a whole different ballgame. Why, why reimagine her life and turn it into a novel versus a biography? Right. You know, there are some great biographies already out there on her. I didn't feel that that space needed any new work by me. And really, I wasn't interested in producing a cradle-to-grave narrative of Dorothea's life. I was really interested specifically in this period of transformation that I saw in her life, of arriving in San Francisco, developing this great, very successful business quickly as a portrait photographer, and then this transformation into an activist that that is really what marks her work in the 30s and 40s and beyond, really. Right. And what drove her to start taking photographs? Well, you know, I think there are a few answers to that. But Dorothea, I think, really spent much of her life feeling like a bit of an outsider. And I really think that can all be traced back to the polio she contracted when she was seven and the fact that her father walked out on her family at the age of 12. Those two things really gave Dorothea a sense of otherness that that pervade, that really followed her about the rest of her life. And so when she gets to high school, she's attending a high school in New York, and she wasn't much of a student. She skipped classes all the time and just went about the city wandering around looking at people. Eventually, she lands a couple of different jobs with a few different portrait photographers in New York as kind of their admin, essentially, you know, running the desk and the phones. And she learns to build, sort of seize this whole avenue for a business. And so that's really what gets her to start taking pictures and has given her this background that she'll use when she arrives in San Francisco to build this business of her own. Of course, in those days, they had these really weird cameras where they (laughs) just slide little things in their back. and And, you know, it was a really emerging... I mean, a lot of people didn't even think it was an art form back then. But so I think it offered some opportunity for women in many ways because it hadn't been fully dominated by men so much like the fine arts. So there were a number of young women all kind of um, trying their hand at photography in this era. What distinguishes Dorothea, and I would also say Imogen Cunningham, her best friend, who I mentioned earlier, is that they stuck with it despite marriage, despite everything else that came at them in life. Most of these other women stopped taking photographs around the time they married, Mm -hmm. which was 
un- not unusual for that time. She actually came into a lot of criticism, both she and her husband, because they both kind of farmed off the kids. Yes. Um, because they were passionate about their careers, and she felt she really had a story to tell. She right. she was driven, right? Right. I, I wouldn't say that Maynard, her husband, her first husband, ran into a lot of criticism. <laughs> um, men in that era, you know, it was really never even discussed that he would have taken care of the children, even though... His artwork really, the market for it dried up with the with the onset of the Great Depression. But Dorothea felt like she was producing change in society. And her photographs in many ways were producing change. I mean, they were certainly leading to relief for people who were struggling in mm-hmm. the state of California and beyond. Um, more camps were being built as a result of the awareness she was building through her photographs. And government was providing more money in aid for a lot of these people who are suffering. So she saw herself as being crucial to helping people who are being marginalized receive some assistance. Right. And some of these, you know, at the, I'll ask you this question now, mm-hmm. because I always like to, if people include Q&A for readers groups and sure. dis- book discussions at the end of the book, um, I always like to turn one of those questions around to the author. Right. And so at the back of the book, you ask people about her photography mm-hmm. and which piece they most like. And do, do you have a favorite piece of hers? I do. I do. You know, everyone knows Migrant Mother. That is her iconic image. Um, I tried not to focus this novel around that photograph. I just feel like it's it's well known already. I would say my favorite photographs really are the images she took during the um, internment of Japanese Americans, specifically some photos she took at an elementary school in San Francisco of these students in the days before the school was to be closed to become a kind of a relocation center, administrative center for all this relocation. These The expressions on these children are so innocent, in many ways optimistic, and they're pretty heartbreaking when we consider them in the context of what we know was coming. And I just feel like Dorothea, she was so forward-thinking in a lot of ways. She could really see what was coming. And I think those photographs, they always tug at my heart when I see them. Mm, It's very touching. It Mm -hmm. is. You know, they say a picture paints a thousand words, and it really does. Right. Them (laughs) saying the Pledge of Allegiance, these kids who are about to be sent off to the desert for not being considered loyal citizens. Yeah. And we're not talking uh, just Japanese kids here because, uh, you know, or today we'd think Hispanic. Right. But um, I mean, I see blonde haired children here, too. Yes. Very all over. Absolutely. I think that, too, is we don't really maybe expect to see that from a photo from 1942. And yet here we are. That elementary school was so diverse. Right. Right. And so you had a couple of favorite places where you got a ton of your research yes, from. Yes. Tell us about those places because they were integral to the right. getting well, this done. There are definitely a few. I mean, I am always a fan of visiting FDR's uh, museum and library in the Hudson Valley. That was great. And when I went there, they were running an exhibit that was commemorating Executive Order 9066. So many of Dorothea's photos were there, Ansel Adams, Clem Albers, um, and The other place that is crucial to understanding Dorothea Lange is obviously San Francisco and the Bay Area. And I had lived in San Francisco for about six years. And so unbeknownst to me at the time, I was kind of a neighbor of one of the houses Dorothea and Maynard lived in. So I still, it's amazing to me to think she and I were walking the same streets many decades apart. And I had no idea at that 
point in my life I'd be writing a novel about her. Um, but also the Museum of California in Oakland has a great collection that's mostly the private collection of all of her work that her second husband gave. Um, and that's their private photographs, her oral history she did through the University of California. There is so much to be found there. That was really wonderful. Much of Some of it can be found um, in public galleries where you can go and see Imogen's camera and Dorothea's photos. But then there's oh, this whole private collection that I got to go visit as well. And then, of course, something that's available to everyone is the Library of Congress, and thousands of Dorothea's oh, were, images place. are there. Yes. <laughs> and you don't have to even leave the comfort of your desk to see those photographs. Right. Right. So um, you mentioned earlier that she was paid by the government, right. which um, surprised me in a way because she did the, take these photographs of Jas Japanese internment. Yes. And there, was, there were mixed feelings yes. around that oh, at the very, time. Very yeah. mixed feelings. Yeah. Actually, so, I wouldn't even say they were mixed. They were pretty negative toward her. <laughs> and so shall I explain her government yes, work Yes, yes, go ahead. Sure. During the Great Depression, um, the government did hire photographers to go out. The FSA, the RA, sort of changes name midway through alphabet soup brought to us by FDR. <laughs> um, but the government did hire photographers to go out and document the state of workers and people throughout the United States. And Dorothea obviously was already doing this on her, on her own. Even while she was running her portrait studio, she was giving herself initially one day a week to go out and document what she was seeing on the streets. Well, eventually, this is the work that catches the eye of Paul Taylor, this uh, economist out of the University of California. And he was doing a lot of government work and producing reports on the state of migrant workers. So he hired Dorothea to start. Well, actually, he hires her as a typist. <laughs> <laughs> because there's of nothing course. originally in the budget <laughs> course, as a photographer. Right. <laughs> so they kind of sneak her in that way. And really, she starts producing these photos that then provide almost a blueprint for a lot of other photographers to start producing similar work of people all over the country and what the state of their lives were like. And so she does that really through the 30s. She receives a steady, well, no, not a steady wage. In fact, she's kind of periodically let go, depending on the state of the budget for the FSA or Eventually, she's like, oh, because they they really consider her too difficult to work with. I think that was sort of coded <laughs> language for the fact that she was the only woman. Um, and then the government hires her again at the start of the internment of the Japanese. And, and that's often a head scratcher for people. I mean, why was the government documenting this? And really, I think they were trying to show, they were trying to create a record that this was not a violent affair, that the people being interned were open to this and compliant with this. And, and in many ways, the government was doing them a favor. Oh. Right. I know. And so Dorothea took the job because she was horrified by what she was seeing. I mean, they had several students. Uh, her husband had several students that were part of this being interned. And they didn't think that they were um, uh, spies or anything like that. So Dorothea had an inside track on knowing that this was, this was wrong. And so she took the job to create subversive photos to sh show the public, hoping to raise awareness of what was happening. Didn't quite work out that way. Not only was the public not interested and really also on board with what the government was doing, but her she runs into some trouble. The government figures out her angle and fires her again. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, after she was fired, did she continue doing that? or No, because she really needed the government to get her into those places. So her work was actually impounded for and, and kind of disappeared from public view for many decades. 
And so really it's the photographs of Ansel Adams and Clem Albers that probably the public was familiar with for many years because Dorothea's work kind of vanishes into the the depth somewhere of the Library of Congress. Um, and so, but Ansel, it must be pointed out, was was very much on board with what the government was doing. And, and really that's pretty evident from his photographs in which he produces these beautiful images of Manzanar and like the stark beauty of the place yes. and the sky. Yeah. That wasn't Dorothea's interest at all. She right. wanted to show the, the, that people were suffering. Right. And so she never really got over that he, she kind of viewed him in many ways as a sellout to the government's agenda. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Elise Hooper. And I want to talk about the book and how you took this fascinating woman and uh, reimagined sure. her life, if you will, for the novel Learning to See. Sure. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Coming up March 25th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Seattle author Elise Hooper joins us with a peek into the life of photographer Dorothea Lange, the woman who captured the real America. We'll also hear from international best-selling author Steve Barry, who always reveals little-known facts about history and thrillers. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on more than 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Mary Moss and Life Vantage Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, March 31st, it's an encore presentation of our first Vet Sunday with Dr. Margot Roman, an alternative vet from New England. She's been treating Pluckner Syndrome for years, does chiropractic, acupuncture, homeopathy, herbs, and lectures worldwide on her groundbreaking and pioneering work. Get to know Dr. Margot on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Conversations live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable it is at conversationslive.net. Going against the grain has never been this much fun. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And I'm very pleased to have Elise Hooper in the uh, studio with me today. She lives here in Seattle. Uh, even though she's a New Englander by birth and heart. I'm becoming more and more comfortable with my surroundings here. <laughs> and her new book is called Learning to See. It's a novel of Dorothea Lang, the woman who revealed the real America. So in the first part, Elise, we talked a lot about her work, which is absolutely sure. fascinating, and some of the challenges she faced with the government and, and just with public opinion, because mm-hmm. here she's a mom, you know, going off and leaving her kids to, to do photography and stuff. As a woman, what, how did you feel connected to her? What was she like? Well, I think that Dorothea, as I think I said earlier, she gives us a really inter- interesting insight into women from this time. Because really, if you were a woman of this era with, with an interest that took you outside of your home, you were really set up to fail. I mean, it's as, <laughs> right. it's as plain and simple as that. There was really no support if you didn't have family living nearby to help you with your family, with your children. Uh, you were really up the creek. There weren't daycares. There weren't, um, you know, you were stuck kind of trying to drum up babysitters or something all the time. As I had also mentioned, her husband really never crossed their radar that he could have helped. So Dorothea, like a few other women from the time, I think of Eleanor Roosevelt often, a woman who is producing great change for the social right, good. But right. she, too, had a very fraught relationship with her family, especially her children. They felt neglected. But you really... 
there was no way you could have really won this if you felt sort of torn between ambition and home. And so, well, certainly I had moments working on this novel where I struggled to kind of understand her choices. At the same time, I really also felt she did not have a whole lot of choice. And that, that is key to understand is that uh, it was a really narrow window for women to, to produce anything outside of, of housework and uh, child rearing. Mm, and she did have some ambiguity, ambiguity about that. So at some point, did she reconcile her? Did she come to peace with her choices? I don't think, you know, I don't think she really ever did. When, when I read her oral history, when I saw a few interviews with her, she did struggle with that choice she had made. She felt like she had missed things. At the same time, she never apologized for the choices she made. I think she felt that she had no choice. And so I think that was something she wrestled with for the rest of her life. Her, she did have grandchildren, and in many ways she was considered a very hands-on grandmother. And I think her own children felt that she was trying to capture something that she had lost decades earlier mm. in the time that she had missed with her own children. I think you can't help but but imagine that with her. Yeah, yeah. It, it was kind of odd in a way because her own father abandoned her, and yes. so you'd think she'd want to be there for her own kids. But right. she did feel compelled to push forward. And, and they were broke. I mean, yeah. she was producing an income single mom yes essentially that is absolutely the case do what you got to do yeah all right so let's dive into the book here (laughs) (laughs) because I'm always fascinated you know what do you choose to pull from there to reimagine this life of Dorothy alive what do you choose to leave out and why right so go ahead yeah well (laughs) as I said she also had a pretty dramatic life I mean sometimes you have to kind of imagine things to create more tension in a novel and if in any in her case, I had to actually kind of smooth out some uh, some surrounding problems. Like at one point, she stops taking photos because she has to deal with her own son who's in crisis. In real life, her brother was also experiencing some legal problems that she had to swoop in and help with. I couldn't even include that because that kind of took us away from I was really following this narrative of what had happened with her own immediate family. So there were sort of points where I had to make some decisions about really what is her emotional journey. Um, But there was no shortage of material. And I really don't think that anyone who would read this would read a biography of hers or watch this great documentary about her, Grab a Hunk of Lightning, and come back to me and say, wow, you really changed her life. I mean, this, this is fiction. You really pushed the boundaries of fiction. I actually really did follow the contours of her life. Um, at times, I just kind of had to smooth the record out and and take out some characters, compress right. time a little, make things so that readers weren't on this really wild ride of tons of characters and traveling all over the country trying to figure things out. Right. And how was writing this different to writing your first book, The Other Alcott's, of right. course, of the Alcott sisters? Yes. Well, in that case, the historical record was pretty bare on May Alcott. So there was a lot of room for me to imagine. And I really did need to rely on her peers, other artistic women from that time, Mary Cassatt, um, to fill in the life of what would it have been like for May Alcott. Really, the best record May Alcott had was her own sister's records, her letters, her journals. Louisa was very prolific. So she was a great source. But beyond that, there was a lot of imagining that had to occur. In the case of Dorothea, there was plenty. Uh, I had plenty of material to work with there. Several great biographies, this oral history. 
her photographs, really. I mean, thousands and thousands of photographs to build a, a picture of this woman's life. So if anything, I had to pare things down. And I, I think it's often kind of a chemistry thing of, of just when things jump out at you and you know you want to use those. And certainly when the novel opens in uh, 1918, when mm-hmm. she's arrived in San Francisco, I knew that was the beginning of this novel. I, I mean, she arrives with her best friend on this trip around the world. And I'm not giving anything away here because it happens in the first few pages. And they are pickpocketed. And that's when we see this emergence of this kind of firecracker of a woman who says, no, we're not going to go home. Let's figure out a life yeah. here and make things happen here. I, I agree. You immediately get drawn into yeah. that. I did too, yeah. Oh, good. Well, yeah. I'm delighted. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we're right at the end of our show, unfortunately. So what is it you want to leave listeners with? What do you want to say about your book or Dorothea Lang that we haven't talked about in this short period of time? Sure. Oh, boy. I know we could sit here forever. (laughs) Well, I think something that must be said is it's very easy to write Dorothea's lack of options off as something that happened many, many decades ago and how far we've come. But I really have to point out that for so many Americans, finding safe, reasonably priced childcare is still very much a struggle for many working families. So I, I just always want to point that out because it's so easy to think we've left all of that behind. But it is... I I saw it as a teacher. Students of mine would miss days from school frequently because they were home taking care of their younger brothers and sisters. Yeah. Thank you for that. And also they're often judged still too. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I know you're starting on your third book, so we can't wait for that. Oh, thank you. Uh, The book we're talking about today is called Learning to See, a novel of Dorothea Lange, the woman who revealed the real America. And you can find out more about Elise Hooper, and her work at EliseHooper.com, EliseHooper.com. And that brings us to the end of today's show. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for spending this hour with us. Thank you for coming into the studio, Elise, of course. And to Eric for keeping us live today, as always. And uh, you can find out more about us at ConversationsLive.net and follow us on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.